0: Thanks, Luke, and praise team. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 8 this morning, is where we're going to be focusing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. You don't have to to teach a kid to, to pretend. I think it's born into their DNA from birth. As soon as they, they come out, they immediately have imaginations. They know how to play make-believe. They are born with it. In fact, when you watch a movie with a child, you know what I'm talking about. It just gives them more ideas of the things that they can do. It just opens up the worlds of possibilities that are before them. I can't tell you how many superhero costumes we own... Or how many times I have played T-Rex in our living room. The key is the short arms. You have to get the arms in really short and the foot stomp. You have to really stomp down with authority. That gives you the the persona of the T-Rex. We do this all the time in our living room. It's all my kids want to do, it seems like. Of course, make-believe doesn't end when you reach adulthood it continues on we learn very early how to hide who we really are we learn how what what the right kind of face is to put on for people as we get into public look I've, I've been in church for a very long time since I was a little kid I've come into church late everybody in the car is mad at each other I've been the one in the back seat, and I've been the one in the driver's seat. I've, been bo- I've played both roles. I've played the kid, and I've played the adult in this scene. You come into church to- on two wheels. You're trying to get there on time, and of course you're late because for some reason three dresses weren't good enough. You had to find the fourth one. No, the real reason you're late is because you decided to jump in the shower at the last minute when I was going to get in, right? This is-, this is how it goes. You pull in, you're... Arguing the worst is when you're silent, when the car is completely silent. That's, that's absolutely the worst. And you get in and you're, you're kind of mad, you're bubbling with anger. And of course, there's Sister Goody Two-Shoes, she's handing out the bulletins at the front door. And immediately you put on that smile, Hey! How you doing? So good to see you. We're doing just great. We're doing fine. We have a face for every single occasion. And we don't stop playing make-believe just because we become adults. We just get really good at it. And it stops being a game, and it becomes a way of protecting our own, ourselves. Basically a way of, of concealing what our hearts are really feeling at that moment, or what our hearts really look like. This morning we're going to be looking at the sixth beatitude and Jesus is going to deal squarely with our motivations. The way this sermon preparation usually goes is that I go into my office on Monday morning and I begin looking at my text. And I usually read over it a number of times. I usually think through it, write down notes, things that I'm thinking initially just off the top of my head. um, Read through what other people have said about this particular passage Think about a various number of things. But then there's a point in the week, and it comes at a different time every week, where the sermon actually hits me. Where the passage actually becomes very real to me. And really, the Lord begins preaching the sermon to me. And conviction starts to take place. That was about the first five minutes of sermon preparation this week. So, I can say... Having been in this verse for the last week, if you've been convicted by the Beatitudes up to now, I think in this one, Jesus turns up the volume just a little bit more and really breaks the back of the self-righteous. This Beatitude has probably shined the brightest light on my own heart. And it's really hard to get up here and preach it. So really what I'm doing, what I'm saying is, I'm going to preach into the mirror, and y'all are just welcome to listen. How about that? Will that work? All right. (laughs) Let's look at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read, as usual, verses 3 to 12, and we're going to focus on verse 8 this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, since it's been at least two weeks since we've been in this passage, there may be a couple of people that are just now joining us in our study. I just want to refresh our memories as to where we are in the book of Matthew. You'll remember the first three chapters of Matthew, uh, the the gospel writer Matthew is introducing us to this character, Jesus the Christ, who he's claiming is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And he's told us, in the first chapter, really in the first section of the first chapter, that this Messiah is of the line of David. He is adopted into the royal line, according to his father Matthew, his adopted father Matthew. He's born by blood into the line by his mother Mary. We're told that in Luke. And not only that, the angel says to him, You will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. So not only do we have a king, but we literally have God with us. And his, his, his journey, his mission, is very clear from the very beginning. The angel tells Joseph he is coming to save his people from their sins. So we know the person that Matthew is claiming that this Jesus the Christ is, and we know his mission is to save us from our sins. And so we're introduced there in the first chapter to the king. Now, what do kings normally bring with them? A kingdom. So we see that very clearly in chapter 4 as we go into the next section where Jesus is going to introduce us to the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. And he says in Matthew four seventeen, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the kingdom where God reigns is here amongst you. And he's telling us You can have citizenship in it. Repentance is the key. That's how you get in, repentance. Now, he's told us to repent, but as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you don't have somebody else to tell you otherwise, you're going to think you're pretty awesome. This is the reason God gives us a spouse, isn't it? they're not really that impressed with you. And they're not afraid of you. So they will tell you how not awesome you really are. It's a sanctifying process that he takes us through. In a similar way, Jesus is introducing us to the kingdom. And he's going uh, on through the Sermon on the Mount, this chapter 5 through 7, this first introductory sermon. And he's going to tell us how the kingdom of God functions. And it's different than the kingdom of the world. And what we're seeing, or what I'm seeing, and I hope we're all seeing, is that the kingdom of heaven functions differently, and I've lived, I've been born into the kingdom of this world. And so naturally, this sermon is telling me how not awesome I really am. It's breaking my back, and it's bringing me back to Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's what this sermon is really doing for us. This sermon that Jesus is preaching is doing for us. And in a few weeks we're going to get into Jesus saying more about the law law of Moses and how that, that functions in the kingdom of heaven. And if the Beatitudes aren't convicting enough, just wait until we get into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount where he eventually says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That doesn't break your back. Nothing will. Question is, what does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? So Jesus is introducing that to us with these beatitudes, the first twelve verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five one to twelve. Beatitude just means blessed, so it's all these blesseds that he gets to in verses three to twelve. It's how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. He's defining the character of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Here he is. This is what it looks like. And this morning we're looking at the sixth beatitude. There in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This morning we're going to drill down into what Jesus is saying here. And all I'm asking you to do is just take a moment to do some self-reflection. Just simply look in the mirror and think about your own heart. Our hearts are the center of our personality. They're our our innermost motivator. So what we're really dealing with here is our motivations, our inward motivations that that really no one else knows but you. So I want you to do some self-reflection. What are your innermost motivations? The first thing that Jesus says here is that about the pure in heart is that our hearts must be sincere to the uttermost. That's what he's saying. Our hearts must be sincere to the uttermost. Blessed are the pure in heart. Your heart must be sincere to the uttermost. Back in, in verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. And I said back then, it's pretty easy to tell what Jesus means because this is almost a direct citation from Psalm 3711. Well, the same is, is really true here. It's pretty evident that Jesus is alluding to Psalm twenty-four. Three to 4 which we talked about earlier we sang about it we Luke Luke mentioned it we read from it he says this in Psalm 24 3 to 4 the verse should appear on the screen behind me who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place this is the opening question that that David asked who is going to see God that's essentially what he's asking That's the nuts and bolts of the question. Who will see God? And then he answers it in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. See, David isn't merely talking about someone who's ritually or ceremonially pure. In fact, that's not even on his radar at this moment. It would be possible to go into the temple and to get cleansed on the outside, to do everything that's possible to obey the law and to actually fulfill the law outwardly. But when you leave the temple to still be impure, because while you were in there you were simply playing dress-up for your heart. That your heart wasn't there. Inside you're mad at your spouse. Or maybe you're mad at a friend. Because of something they did or they didn't do. Or maybe inside you're just doing what you always do. This is culturally what we do as a family. This is part of our tradition. So you leave the temple and you're convinced that you've really done a good thing. But you've just wasted your time. That's all you've done. So David is is very clear here. The one who is pure is not one who has turned his heart toward what is false. He hasn't sworn deceitfully. In other words, his heart isn't serving idols, but his heart is serving the same God that his body is pretending to serve. That where they both align, flesh and heart align. Both my body is doing this and my heart is actually in it. Remember I, I said that Jesus is building a character profile for a, the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And these, these character traits will be on display throughout the book of Matthew. And sometimes we'll see them played out in characters that do exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. And sometimes we'll, say, we'll see it play out in characters who are doing exactly what Jesus is saying. They're modeling for us essentially what's true in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in the book of Matthew, the hypocrite will appear several times throughout this gospel. And they're demonstrating for us exactly the opposite of purity of heart. A hypocrite is exactly the opposite. Now, the term hypocrite, of course, just means an actor or a role player. It's someone who's playing dress up. Now, ironically, it, it, though it seems derogatory in the text, it wouldn't be derog- a derogatory term by nature. Like, it wouldn't be derogatory to call a Hollywood actor a hypocrite. Ironically, as much as, as, much as we want to, it, it wouldn't be. Because that's exactly what they are they're role players, they're actors. The part where it becomes a derogatory term is because in the Gospels, Jesus is not pointing to actors. He's pointing to religious elites. He's pointing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Jewish authorities. And he's calling them hypocrites, role players. You're just acting. You're putting on the clothes like you're religious, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus explains what this hypocrite really looks like. Or what purity of heart really looks like. In Matthew chapter 6, it should appear on the screen behind me, you can follow along. He says, starting in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. There's an inner position of the heart that Jesus is illustrating here in this passage. Only you can see it inside yourself, and He can see it as well, He says the attitude that we're trying to steer away from is people that are motivated by the praise of mankind. That's typical of a hypocrite. That's typical of someone who is playing a role but whose heart is not in it. And we're not even talking about verbal affirmation, verbal praise. That's not merely what we're talking about. You notice in verse 2 he says that they may be praised by others, but then in verse 5 he says that they may be seen by others. The simple motivation that he's talking about here is more than verbal affirmation. Jesus is saying that they just want to be seen doing the right things by others. That the motivation of their heart is not towards fulfilling what God has required of them or coming clean before the Lord. What they really want is for other people to think they're pretty awesome. You're simply being an actor. You're just dressing up the true motivations of your heart in a superhero costume and pretending that you can fly. That's all you're doing. But the reality is that your heart is lost in sinful despair. And you're just trying to masquerade it. D.A. Carson says it like this. Purity of heart must never be confused with outward conformity to rules. Because it's the heart which must be pure. This beatitude interrogates us with awkward questions like these. What do you think about when your mind slips into neutral? How much sympathy do you have for deception, no matter how skillful, for shady humor, no matter how funny? To what do you pay consistent allegiance? What do you want more than anything else? What and whom do you love? To what extent are your actions and words accurate reflections of what is in your heart? To what extent do your actions and words constitute a cover-up for what is in your heart? Our hearts must be pure, clean, unstained. I don't know about you, but I'm rocking this beatitude. (laughs) Not even a little bit. It's at this point once you realize what Jesus is actually saying, that it's really difficult to look at myself in the mirror and to see the impurity of my own heart. The standard is complete and utter purity, not one impure motivation. I can't say that about myself, can you? Brings me to my next point. I'm only left to conclude one thing. That our hearts cannot be trusted. Our hearts cannot be trusted. In this same gospel, Jesus is going to tell us that our hearts are precisely the problem. Your heart is the issue. He tells us this in chapter 15, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of these things are a product of a heart that cannot be trusted. But you understand, this is a heavy theme that plays its way out throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. Even back to the earliest pages of Genesis. You'll remember right after the fall, what do we see in the very next chapter but Cain killing his brother Abel? But he doesn't just kill his brother Abel. You remember the story? There's there's a point where Cain is struggling with what to do because of the sinfulness of his heart, because of what's crept in. He's struggling what to do, and the Scripture says this, Cain was very angry and his face fell. And God sees this and confronts him about it. Jesus has already told us where this is coming from. In Cain's heart, it's, it's from inside. It's from his heart. His heart's wicked. And this is what happens. So Cain, in this scene, is experiencing the same thing that we experience with our own hearts on a daily basis. The book of James puts it like this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Isn't this what Cain is experiencing at this very moment in Genesis chapter 4? Isn't this what we've all experienced from time to time? He's being drawn away and enticed. He's being lured away and enticed by his own inward desires. And so his wicked heart is bubbling up in this anger and the thought of exercising that anger is really appealing to him. Yeah, killing my brother makes a lot of sense right now. That's the solution to my problem. That will alleviate me from this anger. I just want revenge and I just want want to kill him then when desire conceives it brings forth sin so Cain lashes out and strikes his brother and kills him dead and now we don't see a lot of Cain after that story but we do see the fact that when sin is fully grown it brings forth death in the following chapters don't we so much so that in Genesis 6 it tells us The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everybody's in this state. Everybody's here. Well, but then God sent a flood, right? And so he wiped out everybody. Noah the righteous was walking off the ark and... And surely he wiped out all the sin that was continually in everybody's heart entirely, right? Until Noah then sins and then curses his son. And we realize maybe that's not true. Flash forward to Jeremiah 17 9, where he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So obviously the answer is no, nothing changed. The heart is desperately sick. But then we get a solution in Ezekiel 36, 26, where God makes a promise to the people of Israel, and he says this, and I will give you, what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. That's the new heart, a new spirit that he puts within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh God's saying that he's gonna to have to do a heart transplant on his people. That's the solution. Is a complete and total heart transplant. And what is that? That's putting this, his spirit within them. That's what he says. Why? Because our hearts by nature cannot be trusted. And so Jesus is laying on this beatitude and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart. But I know me, and if you're around me long enough, you'll see what I'm talking about. I understand what Jesus is saying here in this passage. When he identifies the pure in heart. Knowing me and knowing what Jesus is saying, I know there's absolutely no way I, by my own might, can live up to this standard. Plain and simple there's no way that i can do it by myself have you ever had an impure motivation just think about that for a second have you had an impure motivation this morning seems logical to conclude then that there's only one solution our hearts can only be fixed by the spirit of god our hearts can only be fixed by the Spirit of God. I have to be given a new motivation. I cannot manufacture it on my own. I have to be given it. My eyes have to be opened to the truth of the gospel. My heart has to be changed. Its motivations have to be made new. This is what it means when Paul says, calls them the circumcised of heart. He says in Romans 2.29, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. He means of the the letter of the law. Your heart isn't circumcised by mere ritual obedience to the law. That's impossible. Your heart has to be circumcised by the spirit of God. It's the only way that it can be made new. God has to do the fixing. He has to open my eyes to see the truth of Jesus. His death, His burial, His resurrection. He has to open my eyes to see my own sin. He has to open my eyes to believe the testimony of the Bible, His written word. He gives me His Spirit through which I recognize my own sin through which I see the truth of Jesus, through which I believe the testimony of Scripture. This is a miracle. It's the miracle of salvation. It is a divine miracle. Otherwise, we would all be busted. Every single one of us would be caught red-handed. There's no way we can actually live up to the purity of heart that Jesus is requiring here. Remember, each week that we've been in the Beatitudes have reminded you That this is a character profile that Jesus is building. So all of these characteristics are describing the same person. And each one of them is building off the other. So at some point in the Sermon on the Mount, all of us are going to hit a brick wall. As we deal with our own self-righteousness, all of our backs are going to be broken at some point. And we're going to reach the end of ourself. And at that point, you realize you can't live up to what Jesus is demanding of you. Let me challenge you to think for a moment. If ever there was a beatitude that would wake you up out of your self-righteous stupor, it should be this one. If ever there was a beatitude to cripple you and to reveal the standard of God's righteousness is absolute and total utter purity and that I can't live up to that, it should be this one. How are any of us going to make it? If you take one step further a couple of chapters down the road from still within the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is talking about the last day and he's talking about judgment. And he says there's going to be many that stand before him and that talk about all the many things they did for him. And he's going to say to them, depart from me for I never knew you you worker of iniquity I think that's the scariest passage of scripture in the entire bible that's terrifying that's absolutely terrifying there's a host of people that are right now dressed up sitting in pews and standing behind pulpits who are in that group You realize that? Those are the people that he's talking about. They're in pulpits and in pews all across the world right at this very moment. And every single one of us should, from time to time, be at least a little afraid that we might be in that group. All of us should be. Folks, I don't know about you, But I don't want to be standing in front of him on Judgment Day, and the only claim to righteousness I have is a three piece suit and a perfect attendance pin in Sunday school. That's not a good plan. But that's what we have we have outward conformity to rules. But the question that Jesus is asking is, what is the state of your heart? Pure or impure? What is the state of your motivations? And it's absolutely crazy to think that it's actually worthwhile for me to show up to church on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis merely playing games. That's not worshiping the Lord out of a pure heart. That's making church a hobby. Church is a terrible hobby. Jet skis, that's a much better hobby. Golf, much better hobby. Following Jesus is a terrible hobby. First of all, you can never do it, not if you're pretending. All you're doing is here on Sunday morning just playing dress up. You've just traded in Captain America costume for men's warehouse. That's all you've done. But you're still just playing dress up. It doesn't actually have any meaning. But it's in, in realizing this, it's in realizing that that's what I have to give. That it brings me back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's precisely it, isn't it? That's the precise meaning of that first beatitude, is that I realize I've got a three piece suit. I don't even have that. I have khakis. I got nothing. I got a Sunday school attendance pin. I have nothing it's the definition of poverty of spirit then it brings me to the second beatitude blessed are those who mourn brought to grief over your own sin realizing that this is all I have looking around going my sin has, has, has put me in this state now helps us to realize our impoverished state. And and what does it do? It brings us into a quiet room where we close the door. We shut the rest of the world out because I have to spend time with the only person that matters, God the Father, who I've offended by my sin. So I shut the door, and I beat my chest and say, "Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner." And that is it. That is the purity of heart that Jesus is illustrating here. That is what He is getting at. It's not about living perfectly. If it was, every single one of us would be out. It's about a heart that's been broken by the Holy Spirit, that's seen your sin for what it is, that's brought you to a state of mourning, that's left you in complete and total poverty and realizing that I have no claim to righteousness in front of God. And so the only thing that I can do is pray that He has mercy on me. That's the broken and contrite heart of Psalm 51. That's the purity of heart that he's requiring here. Someone who's just playing dress-up will continue to run away in sin. And you know what we'll do is we'll run away in sin, and then we'll create gods that actually condone what we're doing. And we might actually even name them the same, the same names as the God we were worshiping. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. I believe in God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. The sin that I'm doing, that's not sin. No, 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 that's not sin. Let me just scrub that out of the Bible. Factor, um, I'm, 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 I'm manufacturing gods of my own making that are not actually consistent with the God of Scripture. Call his name Jesus. And you'll say, no, the problems are the person sitting next to me. The problem is my husband. The problem is my wife. They're the problem. In reality, you're not even examining your own inward period. You're not thinking about your own heart. You, not long after that, you start to point to the people in the church and you say, man, the church is just full of hypocrites. But you don't know if they go in their room and close the door. And pray to their Father who is in secret and repent for the sins that they've committed. You don't know that. Purity of heart isn't about being perfect. If it was, we'd all be disqualified. The hypocrite, the actor, the one playing dress up is the one that refuses to tremble before an almighty God and admit that they're a sinner and admit that they have a part to play in all of this travesty that is their life. When you truly confront the wickedness in your own heart, you know what happens? Is you tend to extend mercy to the people around you. Mm -hmm. Because you realize they're in the same state I am. You want your marriage to improve, start dealing with the impurities in your own heart first. Do that first. And what you'll start seeing is they're not quite as bad as I thought they were because I got a whole list of issues that are really difficult to deal with. Now, I don't know any of your hearts. I barely know my own. So I certainly don't know any of yours. And I don't know if right now you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not sure that I have the appetite for righteousness that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes. I'm not sure that I have the desire for purity. I think there's a chance at least that I may have been playing dress up this entire time. And if you're thinking beyond that, and you're thinking, I don't want to get to the day of judgment and only have a suit and a pen to show for my righteousness. I don't want God to say of me, depart from me for I never knew you. If that's what you're thinking, then I have good news. God could have left us in our current state. And if he did, every single one of us in this room would be bound for the same destiny of judgment. Hell. But truth be told, all of us have that sinful desire that is going to lead us to an eternity in punishment, an eternity in hell, because we've sinned against God. But the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. In other words, God placed on Jesus Christ all of our iniquity. He took all the costumes, all the tools that we use to promote our own righteousness, he bundled them up, put them on the shoulders of Christ, and punished him for them. Though there was no one more pure of heart than Christ. That's the reality of the gospel And he offers us that righteousness, Christ's righteousness, he offers it to us by faith. By faith. faith. Believing that he's done this for us, confessing him as Lord, secures us this pardon and eternal life. That's it. That's what he's required. But let me tell you, it's going to involve coming clean. Some of you may have been playing dress-up and your ears are closed and you're going to walk out the door never even thinking about this again or not realizing that it applies to you. There has to be a spiritual rejuvenation that takes place in order for you to understand what I'm saying, to know that it applies to you and to come clean before the Lord. It's going to involve coming clean It's going to involve a lifestyle afterwards of hungering and thirsting for righteousness and purity and repenting where you fall short. It's going to involve no more acting. It's going to involve genuine, heartfelt purity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know you know the inward motivations of my heart and the heart of everyone in this room only you can reveal our sin so we pray you do that only you can tear down the walls that we've put up the gods that we've made That conveniently ignore our sin, only you know those. Lord, we need a God sized light to shine on them so we can see them. We confess that many times our eyes are in darkness and we can't even see our own idols. So I pray, Lord, that you would crush those. We need you to crush them. Every single one of us have different things that we're holding on to. Things that we serve, think about, things that we desire, that are completely the opposite of what you have commanded of us. Some of those we know and some of those we don't know. Reveal them to us. Give us the gift of repentance. May we confess them and turn from them and praise the name of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.